0: I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details.
3: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
1: You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi
3: Anyway, Galaxy Quest is so good.
1: Galaxy Quest. We is... love
3: it. We actually got to go, um, last year we did a road trip to Utah, and yeah. we got to go to Goblin Valley. Yes. Which is where they shot some of uh-huh. of um, Galaxy Quest. Where and he's fighting the rock monster. These, like, yeah, the mm-hmm. rock monster. And yep. it's got all these cool, like, very rounded, kind of weird sculpture-looking rocks, even though they're not sculpted. They're sculpted by nature.
1: It looks like somebody stacked these, like, boulders all on top of each other up into these, you know, 12, 15, 16-foot structures.
3: And they were so fun to climb. Uh It was a great place. If you get a chance to go to Goblin Valley, it's totally worth it. And it was interesting, too, because it was, like... Just a dirt color and then just a blue sky. And that was like the only colors. Yeah,
1: just red and blue.
3: And then there were like blackbirds, like ravens or something. Very stark colors and just beautiful and fun and weird. It was just dope.
1: Yeah. Loved it. Yeah, it it was really awesome.
3: And yeah, the whole time we were just saying Galaxy Quest quotes. Uh
1: (laughs) And it was, uh, you know, you're done in a few hours it's, yeah, a, it's a yeah. relatively small park yeah. in the middle of the desert. Uh, there's campsites there. There's near. There's towns not too far away. And there's other cool parks to do. That's also when we went to one of our favorite places in the world was Dead Horse Point State Park oh, uh, in God. Utah, which is... It's a, an international dark sky park uh, designated by whoever designates those things. Um, so it's... At night, you're out there and you can see space. Like, it looks like... I'm in space. Mm-hmm. I'm on the ground, but I look up and you can just see all of space. It's incredible.
3: It is nothing like anything I've ever seen. Yeah. Because we are, of course, in Georgia, just very deciduous forest. You don't get a lot of just sky, nothing in right. its way. And
1: we get a lot of light pollution, too, because we're in the city.
3: But even then, it's just a lot of trees blocking right. the way. And they're beautiful in their own right, obviously. But it's, it was cool to go to Dead Horse and sit on a rock, a real flat rock, uh-huh. and just look up and there's nothing in your way. It's just space, like you said. Yeah. Just stars, and you can see the Milky Way, yep. and it's amazing. We watched the sun go down, mm-hmm. and it was one of the few times in my life where I felt like you could see the world revolving. Yeah. Like, it didn't look like the sun was going down. It really looked like we, we were, were moving. moving away. Yeah.
1: Utah is beautiful. Yeah. So much. If you just want to get away from it all, mm-hmm. the middle of nowhere, southern half of Utah. We didn't get to go to Salt Lake. I would love to sometime.
3: Yeah, unfortunately. But we
1: literally. I mean, this was a pandemic road trip, so we were deliberately avoiding people, and we <laughs> pretty much just were... It was the two of us and Hobbs, our dog, in the car with mm-hmm. a tent and a and a bunch of... A lot of stuff. We crammed a lot of stuff in the car. Too much
3: stuff, honestly. But... A little too
1: much, but we were comfortable for the mm-hmm. most part. Cold nights, but...
3: The state parks are worth a see as well. Not yeah. just the national parks, so if you're like crowded as fuck at Arches or something... Check out the state parks because they're less populated and they're just as gorgeous.
1: We stayed in Kodachrome Basin State Park, which is in the (sighs) Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monument. Yes. Uh, And it was, I mean, it was full, but it was small. And the campground was full, but small. And the the basin itself was stunning. We learned this in our research before going out there, and it's true. Don't be fooled into thinking that the national parks, which are relatively crowded compared to the state parks don't think that they are national parks because they have something more than the state parks do because you're going to get the same incredible structures and views Mm -hmm. and colors uh definitely uh, we we did it primarily because you couldn't bring a dog into most national parks right but the state parks generally all allowed us to bring the dog Mm -hmm. uh which he was happy for so so that's our uh our pro-Utah advertisement <laughs> tourism board of the state of Utah.
3: Right. We're going to go far away from Utah in this episode today. That's but... true.
1: Hello, everybody.
3: Hey, everyone. Welcome
1: back to the show. I'm Eli. I'm Diana. We're joined today by our uh, our super producer, Hobbs, <laughs> our dog, who has joined us in the bathroom. Say hello, Hobbs. Yep, he's panting Very articulate. Uh, lightly. And uh, staring up at us like, what the hell is going on? Why am I in the bathroom with you guys? Because you freak out when you're sitting outside the bathroom waiting for us to be done. He's a very special boy and he has a lot of needs.
3: He's a very good boy. He's the He's best. He's actually a very good podcast dog. For the most part, oh, he yeah. just hangs out Yeah. Um, in the other room. But every now and then he gets a little nervous and he'll start nosing on the doorknob and making a lot yeah. of noise.
1: Well, and more so, it's just when we come out at the end, he's just like, oh my God, where have you been? I'm so worried. I'm so scared. Oh, this has been terrible. I thought you were never going to come out again. I thought you were lost in that bathroom forever and there's nothing I could do. just like, Hobbes, it's, it's fine. We're here now. It's true. He's a little bit anxious. Yeah, he has a lot of
3: anxiety. anxieties.
1: He's afraid of kitchens. Mm-hmm. He's afraid of things stacked on top of other things.
3: He doesn't like hallways very much. He
1: hates hallways. He usually walks backwards through doorways. Yep. He will turn around and back through most doorways.
3: Which is weird. It's
1: very strange. Seems
3: like an, a worse Yeah, why you. would you put you the... can't see if something's yeah. coming up behind you. Yeah. Anyway, he's a good boy.
1: He is a good boy, and he's here with us today to help tell this story. This is a great story mm-hmm. um, about two very likable people. Mm-hmm. We always like those.
3: Yeah. Yeah, their marriage literally changed the map of Africa. Wow! So, that's a lot. I've never changed a map. Have you?
1: No, and I don't think our marriage I haven't even changed. taken
3: a map down and put up a new map. Like, <laughs> I have not changed a map. Ever. This story takes place mostly in Botswana. And so, you know, name pronunciations, very important to us. We always try to look them up and make sure we're saying people's names right. Um, so, it's about uh, Siretse Kama and... I, w- I want to say Ruth.
1: R- Routh. I think it's Routh. Routh. R- 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 Routh. Ruth. 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 Williams. Ruth Williams. Williams.
3: I know that's a weird one for your mouth to get around.
1: Yeah, our tongues are not used to a Ruth. Ruth Williams.
3: Williams.
1: Yeah, Soretze was the guy who fought for Botswana's independence mm-hmm. and became their first elected president. That's right.
3: And he may never have fought for their independence if it wasn't for how the world reacted to him marrying a white woman named Ruth Williams. Yep. They literally changed the map of Africa because people had feelings. (laughs) Feelings about it.
1: Feelings. Especially stupid feelings like this. But yeah, we're going to get into that now. We're going to talk about Botswana and where it came from. And we're going to talk about apartheid. Winston
3: Churchill makes the little cameo.
1: Oh, Winston. Oh, Winston. Yep. <laughs> all right, let's get going.
3: Yay! Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. Um, a lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story with a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance.
1: A production of iHeartRadio.
3: So yeah, speaking of maps, just so we know where we're at in the world, I wanted to explain that Botswana is a country in the southern part of Africa. It is bordered by South Africa to the south, Namibia to the west, Zimbabwe to the east, and Zambia to the north. But before the 1960s, Botswana was a protectorate of Britain called Beshuanaland.
1: Bet you want to know more about land.
3: Oh Yeah, the whole time I was like, Bet you want to land.
1: <laughs> That's what they were telling the British.
3: Right. Yeah, like, we bet you want to land do. here.
1: And they were like, oh, Yes, we do. Thank you very much. We'll take it.
3: We like land everywhere. <laughs> Basically, the Bamangwato tribe and other tribes of Beshuanaland in the late 1800s, we were having trouble with some aggressive Dutch and German colonists who were coming in and trying to annex a bunch of African lands for themselves, right? Right. And Beshuana was a very small, I mean, all these tribes, it wasn't even Beshuana at that point, but all these tribes were small. Um, and they didn't have any kind of defense or army or anything like that. So they went to Britain and said, hey, can you protect us from these other colonists. They're taking all our land and right. treating us like shit. And uh, Britain was like, oh, yes, we're very altruistic. No, just kidding. They <laughs> um, <laughs> they really wanted to protect their own strategic and economic interests within Africa. They didn't think that this particular area was that special, but they were like, if we let them get too far into Africa, they'll just take over everything. So yeah, it wasn't we need about... to maintain
1: It wasn't about protecting this area as much as it was about keeping the Dutch and the Germans from getting more. Right, exactly.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they sent over some troops to patrol the borders and Beshuana land became a protectorate in 1885. A protectorate's different from a territory or a colony. If you're like me, I was like, oh, okay. So they came in and hit everyone on the head and was like, do what I say now. But that's not actually how it went down. Um, Protectorates, they have obligations to the protector nation they usually have like a treaty in place where they're like we'll give you some stuff you give us some stuff um but local control is still maintained by the tribes so they have a commissioner from britain who's like hanging out there he's protecting british interests he's speaking you know that's who's the king or queen is talking to um and he works with the chief to kind of keep the peace. Mm-hmm. Um, but the chief is still mainly the guy in charge. Local authority is, is number one.
1: And they're getting uh, you know, a resource kickback of some degree mm-hmm. for protecting them. So it's literally a situation where they're like, Hey, you wanna you guys yeah, you guys can operate however you want. It's your territory, of course, of course, of course. But if you want protection, you gotta you gotta pay a tribute, huh? mm. You pay a little tribute. And you get all the protection you want. You don't, then uh, you know I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, so it's it's basically it's still control.
3: Yeah, 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 definitely. It's,
1: it's still uh, you know it's not a colony in that they are permitted permitted right. I mean to sort of set their own rules, but also like, but you know. Until
3: we don't like it.
1: Until we don't like it anymore, yeah.
3: Yeah, and this is a good story to kind of see how that worked because it was very much kind of a a jockeying for position sort of thing where they were like, oh, I thought we could do what we wanted, and Britain was sort of like, um, not really. Right. But we'll get to that. (laughs) So the Bamangwato still had their chief, who is named King Kama, in charge of the day-to-day. He is still a very powerful figure. Um, and so it's, it's working out. It seems like it's working out pretty well for the Bamangwato in
1: the 1880s. Soratse Kama was born in 1921, and he became Gosi, or king, of the protectorate at age four, which of course is too young to rule. So his uncle, Tsaketi, was the regent and guardian while he grew up. In the capital, he lived in the chief's big house, and he was given a great education, but otherwise he really doesn't act much different from the poorest person in Bamangwato. He drove cattle from watering hole to watering hole. He would play naked in the street with other kids, mm-hmm. which was frowned upon here when I was growing up. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> actually, honestly, in the town I grew up in, probably not that frowned upon.
3: That's true. We were kind it's of different of in Lawrenceville, town. Georgia, where I grew up. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh... Yeah. You could not. Also, the street we lived on was an incredibly busy street. So if you played <laughs> naked in it, you were dead.
1: So, uh, but that was that was normal for them. Totally fun.
3: I just thought it was cool. it was interesting to note that this is a ruler who's not separate from his people. Right. The way we've talked about so many kings and and their harems and stuff, where they're like locked away and no one can see them and stuff like that, and that's not yeah. how it was at the Bamangwato. You. You might be chief and you had a lot of power and influence, but you were doing the same day to day shit that everybody else was doing.
1: Right. And so he went to school in South Africa for high school and college until it was time he went to study law. And that's when he got sent to Oxford in London. That was 1946. This is the first time he's ever kind of mixed freely with white people, you know, that they weren't living in a separate area. Because in land, the white people who lived there, and there was a decent number of white people living there, but they were living in, you know, British sort of controlled pockets, I think. And under British rule, they weren't part of, they right. weren't integrated into their society mm-hmm. of the tribes. So... This is the first time he's in that situation and they treat him pretty well. I mean, he gets a little rib now and then about, you know, being an African king, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that was kind of a teasing thing, like, Oh, your majesty, I'm sure.
3: Yeah, oh yeah. Classic. Uh,
1: but from what we can tell, relatively kind of lovable ribbing. Mm-hmm. Uh mostly cool. Mostly mostly it's pretty decent behavior. He would go to pubs and he learned how to throw darts and when they had dances, the English girls were happy to partner with him. Mm-hmm. It, it's a—it's one of these things that you kind of see the stark difference between England and America at this time in mm-hmm. terms of not to say that it was easy for a black person in England. But it seems like it was a lot easier than it was being allowed in America in the mid-century.
3: Yeah. Well, and and for him in Africa, it was completely everything was separated by right. race. So he right. was probably like, wow. A white girl is willing to like touch my hands and let me yeah. dance with her. It was yeah. probably really like a shell shock. Yeah. Um But yeah, I think in America it was we were not that enlightened. <laughs> Took us a long
1: time. The England got got rid of slavery a long time before we did. Yeah. Um Yeah. You can go back and listen to our episode about William and Ellen Craft.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, who escaped slavery and went to England and lived it up, had a grand old time up there before coming back here and and trying to teach Americans what it's all about.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. So one day while he's in school in Oxford playing darts, hanging out, he meets this girl named Muriel and she's going to go to land on a missionary trip. So he's just kind of telling her about the country. She's asking him questions and stuff. And uh, he's cool. So she's like, hey, do you want to come to this dance that the missionary is organizing tonight? Meet some people. He's like, sure, let me go to this party. And when he gets there, Muriel introduces him to her sister, Ruth Williams, who was a pretty green-eyed blonde. And Ruth was born very – this is – Ruth had a totally different life, of course, than Saretze Kama. She was not inheriting any thrones, (laughs) that's for (laughs) sure. She was born in South London in 1923 to a Cockney tea salesman. She drove ambulances in World War II, and after the war, she worked as like a clerk for an underwriting firm called Lloyd's of London.
1: Damn. I mean, driving ambulances during World War II is, is pretty dope because, oh, I mean, my God. it's not like, I mean, especially in London where people were getting hurt, you're in the action.
3: Yeah. I think that comes through, that strength of character comes through this whole story. Yeah. A, a different, a lesser woman could not have handled <laughs> this this whole series of events. In an article from 1952 by Mackenzie Porter, Ruth is described as a strong character, but also an English working girl who had been reared to expect nothing more exotic than a semi-detached house and a husband who every morning would don his bowler hat, grab his umbrella, and catch a red double-decker bus to the city. (laughs) (laughs) And Soretzi was the first black man she had ever spoken to in her life. (laughs) <laughs> she had seen some around, <laughs> but, but she never, never actually talked up to any. And but they really hit it off. Uh, apparently, they both really loved jazz music, particularly a band called the Ink Spots, which I found out were actually the first African Americans to appear on television. Dope. Period. Okay. Um. So that's pretty cool. And they fell head over heels for each other in a pretty short period of time. Um, they would go out a lot and. Uh, they dated for about a year, and then they decided to get married.
1: And getting married wasn't a decision that was reached lightly. They understood that this was going to be a little complicated. Soretse knew that his wife would become queen of the tribe, and that meant for them that she was the mother of all Bamangwato people. He didn't think they'd have any issues with the tribe. He told Mackenzie Porter, "...it is laid down in tribal traditions..." that the heir to the chieftainship should be son of a chief and his lawful wife. It does not matter who the wife is or from where she comes. The important parent is the father. There is no reason at all why my own future heir should not be born of a white woman. But he thought the problems they were going to face were going to come from the white people in Betswana land. Who wouldn't like it? Those British people living in those pockets, those colonies... He warned Ruth that they would probably ostracize her. But, you know, she might be able to win him over someday. Yeah, and... he was
3: like, there's white-only spaces here, and you can't go in them. Yeah. Like, once you've married me, they basically don't think of you as white anymore. Yeah. You can't come in here.
1: White people are very touchy <laughs> and very sensitive <laughs> about their whiteness. Yes. And uh they have a real hard time getting over it. And so they would see, you know, a white woman who married a black man, even though he's king. I mean, it doesn't matter who he is. They're just going to be fucking assholes about it.
3: Yeah, basically. Yeah,
1: because white people are always assholes when it comes to race. (laughs) We
3: can do better, guys. We can. It's not hard. It's even not hard. It's not
1: fucking care. It's actually not hard. There's all this celebration and whatever. Just fucking white people. (laughs) But it doesn't matter. Ruth was like... I don't care. Come on. Let's do it. I can handle some fucking white people. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. So he's still finishing his studies. They're not moving to Africa right away. They're going to get married in London. So they start looking for an apartment in London. And they had a lot of doors slammed in their face because Siretzi was black. Finally, they found a furnished room in North London. But then they had to find someone who was willing to marry them. And all the churches they went to refused to perform the ceremony, even though interracial marriage was not illegal in Britain. But they just had like a personal problem with it, I guess.
1: Yeah. They're like,
3: I ain't signing this license or whatever.
1: Going back to that, that same difference between England and America at the time. Whereas like, you know, in America until the loving decision, which was sometime after this, interracial marriage was illegal. Right. And in Britain, it was not. So you're like, wow, England got ahead. But of course, we know that just these laws being passed do not suddenly open everyone's hearts and make them good people. People right. are still going to be fucking assholes. So it's still a challenge to live there as as a person of color.
3: Yeah. And and I'm sure would have been happy to marry Ciretzi to any number of black women. Oh, but, right. it, but it was right. just the two of them together. They just couldn't handle it. Right i uh, they're like, whoa, too much. <laughs> so anyway, um, so they were not able to find a church to marry them. They arranged a marriage at the registry office in Kensington. So they basically went to the courthouse. They got their license. Not a lot of pomp.
1: But this wasn't the only trouble they were facing down. More trouble was brewing back home. Soretze's uncle, Tziketi, was very against this wedding. He was kind of being a traditionalist about it. He was like, no way can a white woman... Be the mother of the tribe. That's crazy. Like, not going to happen. You can't marry her. Cancel a wedding. We're done with this. I'm not having it. And in response, Saretze said, okay, I'm moving up the date.
4: <laughs> he moved it up it.
1: several dates. He said, oh, I'm sorry. Do you have a problem with this? Well, guess what? Uh, it's Now it's happening sooner.
3: I'm going to date her even harder. <laughs> <laughs> it was totally a Michael Scott moment. <laughs> yeah, which and, you can kind of... I. You know, you can kind of get because, again, we're talking about a segregated nation right. where white people are so separate and they're so fucking rude. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he's just like, what do you think you're oh, doing? Oh, you can totally this is, understand. This is crazy. I don't yeah. I don't I just don't want it to seem like he was being really discriminatory or something. I think it makes a lot of sense that he was like, this seems like oh. a nuts thing to do and it's going to cause a lot of problems.
1: Given their experience. Absolutely. Like, you could see where he's like, well, if we break this seal. The next thing, you know, the white people are going to come flooding in and they when white people come in, they take what they want. You that know, so true. I
3: didn't think about it like that, but yeah,
1: you can kind of see his his hesitation. It's it's tough because he's telling two people who love each other they can't get married. Um, but you can you can understand where he's coming from, given the circumstances that they're living in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they did get married on September 29th of 1948. Ruth didn't even tell her parents about Suretse until after the wedding. (laughs) She's She's like, like, let me
3: present you with a done deal. (laughs) Yeah, and
1: they cried about it. They cried about it. Because they fucking suck, I guess.
3: White tears.
1: And her friends, if you can call them that, actually snubbed her in the streets afterwards. Mm -hmm. So a lot of bullshit people being jerks.
3: Yeah. In 1949, Soretze flew back to Beshuwana to talk to the tribe because Saketti is like, there's there's a whole split in the tribe now. Some people are with you. Some are against you. Uh, we need to work this out. It's causing a lot of strife. So they held this big town hall with 6,000 of the elders of the tribe.
1: Damn.
3: And Saketti made his argument against the marriage.
1: I love this idea yeah. and also... Can you imagine a town hall of 6,000 of our elders trying to get anything done? (laughs) Oh, never. Never. This seems more productive. Continue. I
3: know. Uh, Tziketi made his argument, uh, and some people were like, yeah, totally, he shouldn't get to marry this white woman. That's right. Um, But then Soretzi said, stand up, those who will not accept my white wife. And maybe like 40 stood up. Some sprang up very quickly and defiantly. They were like, I'm 100% against And then some of them were a little bit slower, kind of hesitant, but they were like, I guess I don't really like it, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so he counts them up, and he goes, only 40? Now stand up those who want my wife and me. And nearly 6,000 rose to their feet, applauding and chanting, Saretsi, Saretsi, heart of our red earth, Saretsi. Awesome. Dope.
1: What an awesome moment.
3: I know. Right. It must have felt good for him you to can't. be like, what did I fucking tell you? The tribe does not care who the wife is. They yeah. don't give a fuck.
1: Don't we all just want that moment where everyone stands at their feet and cheers for us?
3: Calls me the heart of the red earth. Yeah. Yes.
1: I mean, that's why I went into theater. I know,
3: right? <laughs> Someone please stand up and
1: just clap for me. <laughs> once every four years for three nights on one weekend,
3: mm-hmm.
1: if it's a good show.
3: Some people clapped. Can
1: I get a light applause?
3: (laughs) And it fed me for years. I'm
1: sated. (laughs) So Tzaketi was not happy about this uh, loss, but also he was like, okay, I lost. Let me step out of the way. And he went into voluntary exile. And they did... Totally patch things up later, so yeah, don't worry. Yeah, I think
3: he was gone for, like, two years or something. It was yeah. a long time. He came back. It was all cool after that.
1: Ultimately, he was pretty cool. I mean, we talked about how he probably had some valid motivation behind his mm-hmm. his stance. But, you know, it, it seems like the sort of, like, secondary person in power, the guardian kind of character in these sort of stories is usually, like, trying to consolidate power and take things to themselves and being like, no, don't marry the outsider. Because, you know, it feels nefarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was just not what's going on here. Sekedi was actually super cool. He was a good regent. He worked on building more schools. He constructed grain silos. He got water reticulation systems put in. He he improved the tribe's herds of cattle. He even designed like a bunch of the reforms that gave the tribal council a place in how the tribe was run. So Sekedi was a cool dude. Yeah. Like,
3: so the reason they were able to enter an opinion about this at all was because of him. Yeah. And then it happened to be against him. <laughs> and he was like, well, you that's know, that's what, yeah, that's what I asked for. That's what I asked for.
1: A true good leader mm-hmm. will put a position in place to let other people decide. And when other people decide, they'll say, all right, yeah. if that's what you want, that's yeah. what we'll do. As long as what the majority of people want isn't, like, oh, <laughs> oppressive and shitty, that. like... <laughs> When they tried when they did a popular vote for gay marriage, which I is know, dumb. Stupid. When you put social issues to a popular vote, they don't win because people suck. That's why you have to have protections <laughs> in place.
4: Here we go. Again. <clears throat> um
3: he also famously clashed with British colonial authorities over crime and punishment yeah. in Beshuanaland because there was this Scottish mechanic living there named Phineas McIntosh. And I'm not entirely sure what he did. One source said he deflowered so many virgins that all the dads were pissed. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Another one said that he got into a fight with a guy about a girl that he was in love with. And then another said he was drunk and disorderly all the time and also deflowering virgins. Oh, my God. Anyway, whatever it was, the guy was making a real nuisance of himself, all right, and acting out. And everybody was over it. And they were like, you need to do something about this person's behavior. So... They took it to, of course, the Bamangwato chief, Tsechetti. And he said, okay, well, what we do in our tribe and in Bechuanaland land is we flog you when you act up. Wow! So he gave him the regular punishment that anybody else would have gotten in this scenario. Um, I don't like flogging as a punishment personally, but it's not for me to <laughs> say. Uh, but the British... Did not like that. There was Their colonial authority was a guy named Vice Admiral Evans.
1: Oh, this guy looks like a Star Wars villain in my head.
3: I think, yeah, he's probably got the same helmet and everything, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Or like, give him that pith helmet from that guy from... Uh,
1: from Jumanji. Jumanji. The Hunter <laughs> in Jumanji. Yeah. Yes, and the
3: same mustache. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, same accent.
3: Uh, and the big pants. hmm So picture that guy. He found out about this vlogging, and he said, <laughs> Well, by Jove, no native can punish a white man
1: unacceptable.
3: Somebody get me my riding crop to bang against my leg angrily.
1: Never shall this happen again. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so he went, he was like, basically like, black people don't get to tell white people what to do. We tell white people what to do. So I'm exiling you ketty for two months. But the tribe got so mad about it that England quickly reversed course. <laughs> King, King George was like, uh fucking what did you do (laughs) no
1: no 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 no, no. that's not what we meant (laughs) oh
3: just kidding (laughs) and he signed an order to be like bring him back and so evans had to apologize to stichetti and be like yeah okay nobody thought this guy shouldn't be punished i just didn't like that you were doing it but it's fine i guess sorry my bad (laughs) whatever and i'm sure he didn't like doing that at all oh yeah But this is kind of a good, a little story to explain kind of how shit worked out day to day, right? So they were in charge of law and order. White people might not like it, but mostly Britain was like, just let them do their thing. It's their country. As long
1: as they don't fuck with the money.
3: Exactly. We're not trying to start shit and have there be shit. We don't have time for that. Right. And that was a pretty formative moment for Soretzi as well. He saw that in the British justice system, there was justice for the native that they were able to push back on that and they capitulated and the white man was the one who had to apologize. I think that was a very unusual thing for Soretzi to see happen right. in his country. So he was definitely like, Britain's cool. I like I like Britain. They're cool with us. I'm cool with you.
1: But yeah, that that led to Saketti stepping down without a fight, realizing he's outvoted. But it's time for Soretzi to come home. And he's like, you know what? This is cool. After seeing that whole interaction with the British... I'm thinking I can bring my wife over, and things are going to be great. I got the elders were all on board with it, and the tribe's cool with it, so Britain should totally be cool with it too, right? Why wouldn't Britain be cool with this?
3: So Ruth joined him in land in 1949, and her arrival coincided with the best rainfall the nation had seen in years. So the tribe started calling her the Rain Queen.
1: Cool. You come in, and you're the queen uh-huh. And you get this awesome nickname immediately. Right away? Not to mention, like, I mean, if I showed up and they started having great rainfall, I, part of me would be like, maybe I am the rain queen. Know, right? Like, oh, damn, I brought the rains. Okay, <laughs> <me."> <laughs>
3: she brought um, the rains to Africa.
1: <laughs> she did bring the rains down Africa. <gasps> she got it. She probably didn't. I bet I, weather patterns did. But
3: would be funny if she was like, I made it rain. <laughs> Another time... As Ruth sat in the shade of an acacia tree, hundreds of Bamangwato women started to just kind of file by her. They had baskets of corn and pails of water on their head, and they were just kind of around. And then all of a sudden, they rushed over to Ruth. They're all singing a song. They place the water and the corn at her feet, and they tell her, you are the mother of us all. And apparently, Soretzi could see this happening from the kitchen window, and he smiled proudly and then stunned everyone by continuing to wash the dinner dishes, a courtesy he had learned from white husbands in England, Mackenzie Porter wrote. (laughs) And I feel like there's probably several British wives laughing right now. Like, I wish that my husband had learned that from some white husbands in Britain, but whatever. (laughs)
1: Right. (gasps) I just realized that we, that's, that's a... Gender normative role that happens in this house is because it because you wash the dishes?
3: Yeah, but you could do all the cooking.
1: Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's <laughs> totally different because I do all the cooking, right? And the shopping and the cleaning and the
3: um, picking I you clean. up and
1: carrying you to bed. Um, I clean. I brush your teeth for you. Untrue. Um, I I wash <laughs> your hair. I I walk you around like weekend at Bernie's whenever right, we go right, somewhere. Right.
3: I think you're moving my mouth right now. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. No, you've been catatonic for eight years.
3: Wow, I'm doing great for catatonic.
1: You are, yeah, no, it's Still,
3: bringing down a paycheck and everything. <laughs> take that, Bernie. <laughs>
1: I take the trash out.
3: That's true. I hate taking the trash out. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> they also started to feel out the white people in the area because again, Soretzi was like, "These are the, this is the problem over here." There was a hotel there that only white people could go in, and. In deference to the fact that he was the chief, Siretse had, they had deigned to serve Siretse through a window a time or two in the past. How? Wow.
1: What a, what benevolence.
3: What a concession, my God.
1: (laughs) Well, you're a king, so I guess we'll, we could toss a bowl out for you.
3: (laughs) For real. We'll we'll pass a pint through the sill.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Oh, God, they're the worst.
3: Um, so they, they were kind of testing these boundaries a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so they went together. They they pull up on the hotel. They walk in together. The hotel was showing Frankenstein and the Wolfman, which had just come out recently. The movie. Yeah. The movie. Well, I don't think they were showing the actual Frankenstein and Wolfman. <laughs> I mean, it
1: might have been a play or something. All right. Bye. I guess
3: that's <laughs> a possibility.
1: I want to see the play. Anyway. <laughs>
3: Anyway, they're showing Frankenstein and the Wolfman. Ru- Ruth and Soretsi come in and they sit and watch the movie and then they leave. No big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Big deal. The white people fucking miss the movie because uh-huh. they were so busy. Oh, my God.
1: There's, a, where's, 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 where's there's right? a black person sitting back Did there. Did you see that? The white person. A they're black sitting. person at a movie. Oh, my God. Unheard of. I,
3: I don't know why. I'm not, I keep looking back. Just look at them. It's really distracting me from the movie. Even though they're not doing it, I'm doing it. <laughs> After they left, one white woman said, well, that just about beats everything. Wow. <laughs> you haven't seen very no. much. I think you need to get out there a little bit more. <laughs> beats
1: everything. A black person in a movie theater. Well, I've seen it all now. You've seen it all
3: so far. <laughs> yeah. Another time they went to this recreation club that was for only white people And they didn't try to, like, participate in any of the activities. They just hung out on the field, like, opposite side of the field from all the white people. And the local garage proprietor said, It gives you a bit of a shock to see them walking around together like that. But he's a nice chap, really. I cannot see that the setup is wrong. Honestly, I can't.
1: Cool. Thanks, buddy. Another
3: concession. Yeah, him just being like,
1: well, this one's okay. You know, like, that's that's what it reeks of to me.
3: Yeah, like, totally. I'm
1: a racist piece of shit, but there's one person that I saw once that I didn't hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Okay. Fuck off. So you got a problem.
1: <laughs> so you're a big racist piece of shit. Uh
3: Yeah, so the tribe is cool. They are totally down with Ruth. Yeah. And the white people are even kind of, they're, they're getting there. Yeah. They're getting there. Yeah. So Britain is cool too, right? End of story. You'd think so. Nope. Britain is not cool. And we'll find out why right after this.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
1: He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed... (laughs)
0: listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare hey everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call if you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit consumercellular.com.
2: Taxes, fees and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At
4: JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like mother's day and the wind down tour. I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion this spring. I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for mother's day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at price. That feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her each in women's petite and plus sizes and Stafford and mutual weave for him style and comfort for all even big and tall plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and exertion Here, spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors J.C. JCPenney make everybody count there's a lot happening these
3: days.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. And let's talk about why Britain wasn't cool. You'd think they would be. Everybody else was fine with it. Uh, people seem to be real happy with these two being married. But Britain didn't particularly care except for one small problem, right? Daniel Milan and his national party in South Africa had instituted apartheid in 1948. Apartheid was a white supremacy function Uh, It was a legal way to make sure that South Africa was dominated politically, socially and economically by the nation's minority white population. This was a type of segregation, everything from social circles and public facilities, employment, housing. This was all segregated on racial lines. Mm -hmm. Segregation is nothing new, but apartheid was particularly horrible. Uh, just millions of people forcibly ripped out of their homes and made to leave and then those homes were sold at a fraction of their value plunging the non-white population into poverty and more than 80% of the land was set aside and only available for white people to buy non-whites needed special permits to be in certain parts of the country black people who tried to defy any of these laws could be fined imprisoned or even whipped And one of the first laws they passed in South Africa was marriage prohibition, which completely outlawed interracial marriage. So you'd think, well, that's South Africa, right? What does this have to do with Beshuwana Well, they're the neighboring country, and when they're trying to float this idea that they'd have a mixed-race ruling couple, South Africa did not like that shit. Daniel called it nows No... No... It's my South African accent.
3: Nauseating? How do they
1: talk? South Africa is such a difficult accent to pin down because, I mean, like, I know that Leo did a really bad one in Blood (laughs) (laughs) Diamonds. from what I've heard. I didn't see it. Anyway, Daniel called it nauseating and disgusting.
3: You're nauseating and disgusting, you piece of shit. That's what I would have said. I hope. I hope that's what I would have said.
1: What they're really worried about is that right after passing this law, they couldn't have an interracial royal couple living right across the border and making them look like fucking idiots mm-hmm. and making their majority black population, you know, even more angry about apartheid by looking, you know, right, right up north and being like, how come we're segregated and split and being forced out of our homes? And but right there, we're seeing a black ruler marry a white Londoner. What's and your it's
3: fucking fine, problem? And nothing is yeah, a problem. Nobody
1: cares. So, England sees, you know, what's happening in South Africa with them getting kind of rabble-roused about it. And South Africa actually started putting a lot of pressure on Britain to tell Soretze to abdicate his throne. South Africa also banned Soretze and Ruth from coming into the area. And this was a big problem because the administrative capital for land was in a city called Mafeking, which was located in South Africa.
3: Now, it might be a surprise to you that Britain was ready to appease an apartheid government because most people were not into apartheid. They were like, this is bullshit. But Britain was ready to appease because of uranium.
1: Fucking uranium.
3: Fucking uranium. It's 1949, remember, okay? So the World War II pretty much just ended a couple years ago. Britain is broke as fuck uh, after the war. And, of course, they want to make an atomic bomb so they can be on even keel with the Americans, just like every other major power. Everyone was looking to make their own atomic bomb after we dropped R2. But uranium is not available everywhere. Canada had uranium, but it was more expensive than South African uranium. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Canadian miners were paid. (laughs) They were paid well. (laughs) And so their uranium was more expensive. South African uranium miners were black. So they were paid like shit. And so the uranium was cheaper.
1: And you're telling me, <laughs> you're telling me a bunch of white people got cheap labor out of black people, exploited them for it, took the profits, and didn't pass it on to their labor?
3: I know it's unusual. They were a product of their time.
1: <laughs> yeah, and of current time and of time. All time. Uh... All
3: time. And South Africa made it very clear to England that if they wanted to keep purchasing my uranium, you better stop this marriage or at least keep this couple far away from Africa. I don't need them here. We don't need to be dealing with that. So in 1950, the British government asked Soretze to come on back to London for a chat, old boy. (laughs) And Ruth is like, don't go. She said she had a premonition that they would keep him there. But Soretze was like, I think it's smart to go see what they want. I mean, they're, we're a protectorate; we have to care about their opinion. I'm ready to take on my duties again, and I need their support. So he goes; he flies back to London.
1: She's like, "This couldn't be a Zoom call."
3: <laughs> so he flies back to London. Ruth did not join him because she was pregnant at the time with their first child. She wanted to make sure it was born on Betuana land soil because that is how kings inherited. So she's like, "If it's a if it's a boy, it has to be born here." Right. Or else it might be a whole rigmarole to, right. you know, get him to take over. But she was very worried about Soretze leaving.
1: And she was right to worry. Britain informed Soretze that they had conducted a governmental inquiry and found that he wasn't suited to rule Bechuanaland. Surprise! They asked him to abdicate.
3: Side note, this governmental inquiry report was suppressed for 30 years. They wouldn't let anybody see it. Yep. When it finally came out, it said that Cerece was eminently suitable to rule Vachuana land. Of course he was. But for his unfortunate marriage, which may cause strife with apartheid governments. And so, yeah, London was like embarrassed by that shit because it wasn't a very good reason to let a guy not marry someone or fucking do his own thing.
1: It's the kind of thing where they knew it was dumb. That's yeah. why they suppressed it for 30 years. That's exactly. Why went, don't tell him. Just tell him that it's a bad... We we don't think you should do it mm-hmm. anymore. Don't tell him why.
3: Yeah, so a little bit of a cover-up here with this governmental inquiry.
1: Uh-huh. And is like, hey, uh, abdication is not a thing in the Bamaguato tribe. The bloodline is the bloodline. It's inalienable. If I'm king because I was born to be king. I'm the king. You don't get to just say, well, I don't want to be king anymore. Somebody else do it. Mm -hmm. We don't do that here. I don't know how y'all do things (laughs) up in London where apparently a guy just like, oh, I want to marry a divorcee. Okay. I guess I just won't be king anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. And so London is like, okay, well, if you're not going to abdicate, then you're going to have to stay here in England in exile. So Soretza had to send Ruth a telegram It said, tribe and myself tricked by British government, stop. And banned from the whole protectorate, stop. Love, Soretze. Which, talk about conciseness.
3: Hey, you gotta pay by the word, I think. (laughs) Yeah, right. So, Ruth got that telegram, and obviously that means she's going back to London, too. So, she comes and joins him with their daughter, Jacqueline, who was born in Betuanaland, and they lived in Croydon on 60 pounds a week from the British government.
1: And 60 pounds in 1950 is worth checking transfer the pounds converter. Oh, I had it set to Deutschmarks. Hang on. 2,109 pounds today. And that's about a little under $3,000 today.
3: A week? That's pretty good. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they weren't trying to be jerks. They were just being political about it, which yeah. is so annoying. It's like almost worse. <laughs>
4: <laughs> right, right. It's
3: not really worse, but it's just like, oh, this just seems like such petty nonsense, you yeah. know, that you would just be even madder that it's like, this yep. doesn't even fucking matter. Just let me do what I want. Yep. Well, the tribe was pissed. They were royally pissed about this. Um, more than 2,000 of the tribe gathered to hear a woman named Rent Shabo speak out against... Soretze and Ruth's exile. And this is apparently one of the first times that women had a voice in the tribe like this. And she said, Since Siretse went away, even the goats cry all night. We are a dead people. So, again, this bloodline thing mattered a lot to them. And, they, you know, I think they probably didn't like very much the British coming in and telling them who got to rule them right. and stuff. Right. Um, so they were just, like, real mad about that. They came under the authority at that point of the local commissioner from the UK. And they rioted so much that the local native police had trouble restoring order. So the tribe is angry. And also, British people were angry. British public opinion was very against this because they were like, interracial marriage is not illegal here, it's not illegal there. Who the fuck cares what South Africa cares, wants? Why are you capitulating to these racist Uh dicks? we should not, we're, we're we're England. We're the empire of England. Right. Like We should be telling them what to do, right? right? Why are we letting them right. push us ar- around?
1: And Suretz. you all right, Hobbs? You want to go? All right, Hobbs is making a move. Hobbs run? has decided he's no longer interested in being in the bathroom.
3: Okay. Well, I have to step back and let me open the
1: door. <laughs> he's having a hard time figuring out the mechanics of the door as things are crowded. Good boy. And off he goes and sad that we're not following him. Sorry, bud.
3: (laughs) Sorry, bud. (laughs) We'll be out in a minute. Good boy. I hate closing the door in his face. Anyway,
1: go ahead. Well, Soretze wasn't quiet about it either. Good for him. He's not about to take this in stride. He gave a speech to 800 students where he said, I have been banished because I dared to love and accept the love of a white woman. And we were talking about this, and that accepted the love is... A really big part of it because it wasn't so much that he that a black man loved a white woman. The racism really comes in, especially heavily, in that he accepted love from her and that he didn't know his place is sort of what I think the South Africans were thinking.
3: I just thought it was a really important point because you know, we're, we're American, obviously. So we're coming at this from an American point of view and here we don't have a great history, obviously. And if you think about interracial stuff, I think that's where, and and also, you know, Ruth is experiencing a lot of blowback more than Soretsi did even in London. Right. And it's, it's almost worse that she's this race traitor than that he is black at all. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm putting that very well. Well, because,
1: but... again, white people are so sensitive. Right. Oh, it's so dark. And it's
3: very gross and fucked up.
1: And after he gave that speech and left the stage, he was shaking with grief. And the crowd was pissed. And they got up and they yelled shame so loud that it shook the rafters. <laughs> and it were shame on the, on the British government. Yeah. Obviously not on Saretse, but on on this decision happening at all. I wish they had a bell. They all had a bell in their hand. Ding, shame. Shame.
3: Shame. shame. And now they're all on Ted Lasso.
1: Yeah, side note. Yeah, that's Hannah Waddingham from mm. Ted Lasso is the shame septa from Game of Thrones.
3: Blew my mind when we found that, that out. awesome. I was like, what? What a totally, because she's so hot in Ted Lasso and as the shame septa, she looked like a just well, some she was, horrible you monster. You just hated
1: her so much. Mm-hmm. Even though, I'll, I will say, I remember thinking... Shame is kinda of hot. <laughs> and then of course I fell in love with Rebecca on Ted oh Lasso. God, I love and Rebecca. then found out that they're the same person. I'm like, yes, <gasps> she's amazing. She's got pipes. Yeah, she does. Anyway, enough about a white British woman. Let's get back to <laughs> Let's get Ruth. back to
3: a different white British woman. <laughs> but first we will take a quick break and hear these fine words from our sponsors.
0: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guillotine now. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details.
1: Okay, welcome back to the show. Uh, where were we?
3: Some people thought Soretze had married Ruth as a direct challenge to South African policies. But Soretze denied that. He told Mackenzie Porter, Nor did I marry her to test the integrity of British colonial policy. I married her for love. Right. I am entitled to the consort of my choice, no less than I am entitled to the chieftainship of the Bamangwato. I shall never give up one for the other. Awesome. Amen, brother. You yeah. totally are deserve the freedom to choose your bride and yeah. to go take your normal place in the friggin' scheme of things. Right. <laughs>
4: right.
3: But none of that swayed the government, unfortunately. Soretzi <sighs> um, and Ruth were banished for five years under the labor government of Clem Attlee.
1: Which Winston Churchill called a disreputable transaction. (laughs) But uh, interject here, just if y'all heard our Winston and Clementine Churchill episode recently, uh, which is a very cool episode about this Mm -hmm. couple who fell in love and their love helped England and the allies fight off the Nazis. And we're all very glad that that happened, of course. Um, But we also mentioned that Winston Churchill... Did some pretty shit things especially when it came to British colonialism and just being like kind of fucking racist and despite him challenging the labor government's decision to banish them for five years when Winston himself was elected prime minister the second time in 1951 he extended their exile to a lifetime ban he said their return would be a danger to public order
3: Man, fuck you, Winston. Fuck That's Winston fucked Churchill. Up. So he just was saying some shit to make Clem Atley look like an idiot. Yeah. At the time. Yep. And then when he had the opportunity to change it, he was like, No, it's still politically expedient to do what just exactly what Clem did. You yep. know what I mean?
1: You mean you're telling me that <laughs> the left side of the political spectrum would do something, and the right would condemn it, and then when the right gained power, they would do the exact same goddamn thing.
3: Uh-huh. The only I thing not
1: wrap my brain around that.
3: The only thing that's missing is that Clem Attlee or the labor government didn't come out and say, well, what a messed up thing to <laughs> yeah, do. Right, How could you exile right. someone? Uh, that's the only thing missing from this little equation.
1: And this caused even more riots in Bechuanaland. land. Right? When the tribe was ordered by the British commissioner to replace Soretze, they refused. They're like, That's not how we do things down here. We done told you.
3: It's bloodline, bro. We don't just pick some rando to do this. Yep. So Soretze became very depressed. He had a lot of bouts of depression yeah. um, during his exile. Um, Ruth told Mackenzie Porter. Mackenzie Porter keeps coming up in this because Ruth and Soretze didn't talk to a lot of journalists. Uh-huh. Big surprise. Journalists were dicks about this <laughs> story. And Ruth really, Ruth particularly really hated it when British governments like incorrectly described the African nation of Beshuanaland. They yeah. kept like calling it either a jungle or like a savanna. And she's <laughs> like, it's a desert. Like, it's totally you're wrong. You just don't know anything about Africa.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And so she didn't talk to a lot of reporters. Mackenzie Porter was like the only person that she ever really talked to. So there's a really good this article from 1952 is a really good, um, pretty in-depth dive into their story at the time. And so she told Mackenzie, you know, sometimes Siretse would just sit in front of the fire brooding. Much as I love him more than the day we were married, I cannot move him when he gets into one of his black moods. There is absolutely nothing that will snap him out of it. In
1: 1956, Siretse and Ruth were allowed to return to Betuanaland, but on condition only as private citizens. They were like, you can't go back and retake your throne, Mm -hmm. right? And this might be because the tribe sent Queen Elizabeth II a telegram asking for them to be restored. Or it might be because Winston Churchill realized that it was basically a diplomatic necessity to kind of stick it to South Africa in some type of way. He's just like, you know what? This will piss him off.
3: Mm -hmm. But Um, it's not going to piss him off so much that they'll stop selling me this uranium. Right,
1: exactly. Probably, ultimately, it was a combination of those two things. And Soretze had to renounce his claims to the throne and he decided to go and go back to his roots, become a cattle rancher for a little while, but wasn't very successful. There wasn't much money in it. Mm-hmm. So he got involved in local politics and he was elected to the tribal council as a secretary in 1957. That must
3: and... be weird to go from chief to secretary. Like...
1: Yeah, but you got to imagine he probably had a lot of pull. Probably had more influence, Probably, right? than, yeah. than your typical secretary in the travel council. Very true. He was like, "How often do you think he dropped that?" <laughs> like, well, when I was king, you know, uh, this is how we did it. They're like, "Oh God, he's, oh, he yeah, goes, he's like, yeah, we fine. we know, we know, Sir you were king. We're all we miss it a lot, but <laughs> but in 1961, the British made him an officer of the Order of the British Empire." Which was a commendation they gave out. It was in recognition of his service as a tribal secretary.
3: But then in 1960, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan made his famous wind of change speech in Cape Town, South Africa, which is, again, a very famous speech where he was basically telling South Africa specifically, but also the rest of the world, that his government had no intention of blocking the independence of African nations. He was like... You know what? We colonized this whole place, and now they want to rule themselves, and it's happening. There's nothing we can do about it. We Why why are we standing in the way? Let's just get on to the modern age here, and yeah. you need to come with us, South Africa. I know you don't want to, but you need to. And so pretty much every African nation that had been colonized or occupied or become a territory or a protectorate or whatever little word that was used for their yeah, to the specific yeah. situation. Yeah. <laughs> They were all like, ooh, great. Let yeah, let's get on that. I would I yes, I would like very much to rule myself yeah. and not have to friggin' bow and scrape to you guys who don't even fucking live here. And important to note, settled colonies had to actually engage in armed conflict with their settlers. Right. Um, frequently in some of these African nations. However, since Bechuanaland was a protectorate, they had a different situation going on with with Britain, and they were able to do it a totally different way, um, much more peacefully. And that was by creating political parties and essentially building their politics, creating parties, you know, something London can get behind. <laughs> They're like, I get this. Yes, parties. Yeah. And the first big political party to agitate for independence was called the Betuanaland People's Party or the BPP. And they wanted a government with no social, tribal, racial, religious, ethnic, or language discrimination. They wanted one-man, one-vote elections, and they wanted immediate independence from uh, Britain.
1: Soretze was all in on this, except for the immediate independence. That felt kind of quick. He thought they needed sort of an orderly transition. uh, And, like, we would set a timeline, be able to write a constitution. You know, let's get our ducks in a row before we just cut off, you know, the people who've been kind of handling that aspect of our government. And he was a little worried about sort of how radical the BPP was, it's just kind of their extremeness in some of their views.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So he formed the Beshuanaland Democratic Party, or the BDP, in 1961. It was Soretze and Mazir who was a former journalist and a farmer. They wrote the constitution together and they launched the party in 1962. Soretse was the president of the party and Mazir was the secretary and they had a former trade unionist as their vice president and they ran a united and well-organized party and that enabled them to take advantage of all the splits that were within the BPP. And they then became the dominating political faction.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of infighting in the BPP about who would be in charge and so on and so forth. They did not have that problem. Probably partly... To your point about the fact that Soretse had a bloodline, right? So I think it was probably pretty easy for them. Well, obviously you're the you're the president of the party; uh-huh. y- you should be in charge. Whereas the BPP did not have that. Everybody yeah. was very equal, and so they were like, "Well, why should you be ahead right, of me?" Right. So yeah, I think that probably was a lot of weight for that.
1: He started negotiating with the local regional commissioner, and in 1965, Botswana land held their first elections. Soretse's party. Dominated. They won 28 out of the 31 seats in the new legislature. And Soretze became the prime minister.
3: And the BPP won the other three, by the way. So they were the opposition party.
1: Right. And under his leadership as prime minister, they were granted full independence in 1966. And he was elected the first president of Botswana. So he kind of did get his throne back, in a way.
3: In fact, more, because he would have just been the chief of the Bamangwato tribe.
1: Now Specifically,
3: he's... and now he's in charge of the whole place. Yeah. So way to go, Suretse. Way to come back strong.
1: <laughs> and this is when they chose the name Botswana mm-hmm. from Beshuwana mm-hmm. And the British Empire also made him a knight. So he was Sir, Soretse Kama now.
3: At the time that he was elected, Botswana was the world's third poorest country in the, the world.
1: world. <laughs> Out of all the countries, there's the poorest, the second poorest, and then and Botswana. Botswana.
3: Yeah. Uh, they had minimal infrastructure. They only had seven and a half miles of paved road. Wow. Very few citizens had any kind of formal education. Um, they only had 22 university graduates and 100 secondary school graduates in the entire population, wow. which was something like half a million people or, or more. Um, so Soretti had his work cut out for him to bring Botswana into a modern age and make it truly independent because, right. you know, they couldn't really pay for shit themselves they didn't have any money so they still needed a lot of help from britain Mm that you know but fortunately switzy is a smart guy and he knew the first thing that needed to be worked on was the economy they needed revenue streams up in botswana so he concentrated a lot of his effort on exports that they already had going on like beef copper and diamonds and i think this is kind of a funny point here when it was a protectorate The Brits kind of neglected Botswana land because they were like, it's not a productive country. Too bad for them, because in 1967, enormous diamond deposits were discovered. (laughs) And now Botswana has one of the largest diamond mines in the world and the second most producing diamond mine. So, if they had just looked around a little bit, there would be no Botswana, probably, because they never would have given it up.
1: Yeah. It's like, a, you know, yeah. oh, I'm going to sell this old farmland. I ain't using it no more. The grass is all dead. And sell it off to somebody, and they're like, hey, what's this black stuff coming out of the ground? Strunk I was just oil. trying
3: to dig a well, and all this sludgy stuff came up.
1: <laughs> oh, honey, we're trillionaires. I should run for president. Ooh. <laughs> And that's 2028. Um, <laughs>
3: Uh-oh. <laughs> Actually, De Beers Jewelers came in to Botswana in 1971, and they established a 50-50 deal with the government to open a mine there. Um, so all that really helped Saretze grow the economy of Botswana.
1: And, of course, like now at least, I mean, we, we can talk in recent years that the uh, many issues with diamond mines And Mm. the labor being done there, it's dangerous, it's Mm -hmm. deadly, Mm -hmm. and it's paid for shit. It's practically slave labor. uh, It's really horrible. And, you know, in recent years, that's been turning around, uh, you know, to the point where it's even nice to see that De Beers has been struggling in recent years. But Botswana has been one of the nations or one of the world's leading diamond producers, and it has come under fire for bad conditions. I also read that by 2050, their diamond mines are going to run dry. So Botswana is currently transitioning out of diamonds, Mm -hmm. um, trying to find other sources of revenue. But we don't know what those conditions, as far as we've been able to find in a cursory glance, what those conditions were like
3: for diamond
1: mines. I
3: think they're the usual shit conditions because mines are in rural areas. They employ poor people who are desperate enough to do this incredibly difficult and dangerous work. Right. Um, normally marginalized, of course, populations. It's no different in Botswana than it is anywhere. Um, right. In that way, I don't think it's particularly bad. Like like the Blood Diamond in Sierra Leone like Leo's and stuff. Accent. Yeah. yeah, like Leo's accent, and Blood Diamond. Bad. It's not as bad as Leo's accent, and Blood Diamond. <laughs> Um, as far as I know, again, I, I, I looked up, you know, human rights violations in these mines and stuff, and I mainly got an overview of diamond mines in general, nothing particularly right. about Botswana's mines. But even back in the 60s, Turetse knew that minerals were not the only thing. They They couldn't be the only thing. You know, he was yeah. like, if you rely on one thing, you're playing yourself. Yeah. So even then he was starting to think about, OK, we need to we need a tourism industry. We need mm-hmm. foreign investment. So he was already, you know, he was thinking light years ahead, really. Yeah. Um, and so I'm glad to hear that they're transitioning away from diamonds yeah, uh, and thinking ahead like Sorette would want them to.
1: Soretze also knew that corruption was going to be a huge problem in developing African nations, and he took a lot of measures to prevent it. He promised low and stable tax rates for mining companies. He liberalized trade. He increased personal freedoms. He upheld liberal democracy and non-racism. He tried to create a small and efficient public service bureaucracy that was designed to hire workers on merit. Right? He encouraged mining companies to look for other precious minerals, which led to the discovery of more copper and nickel and coal and all these, like you said, other streams of revenue that came in. So they weren't just relying on one. Mm
3: hmm. He also had the government subsidize the cattle industry. So the government handled fencing, veterinary services, and vaccinations. And they also set the prices for the beef in the marketplace. And thanks to Soretzi's negotiations with Europe, they got a much higher price for their beef than other places did. So he was savvy.
1: Oh, that's the good Botswana beef.
3: Mm-hmm. You need that good old Botswana mm-hmm. beef. So between 1960 and 1980, Botswana had the fastest-growing economy in the world. And by the mid-1970s, they had a budget surplus. And they used the money to invest in infrastructure, healthcare, and education. Um, He also launched a fundraising campaign to build Botswana's first university, which opened in 1982. And his government spent very little on defense because he really wanted to build up this infrastructure and the economy. That's where his focus was. But Soretzi played major roles in ending the civil war in Rhodesia and the resulting creation and independence of Zimbabwe. And Botswana also became an important center for anti-apartheid activity. They took in a lot of activists fleeing from countries like Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe, Namibia, and South Africa until apartheid finally ended in 1990. That shit lasted a long time, y'all. Yeah. So under his leadership, Botswana became one of the most prosperous and stable nations in the continent. And he was easily elected to three more terms. So he ruled the nation from 1965 until 1980.
1: And it's not like Ruth was just sitting around, fanning herself, watching this all go down. She was a highly involved and active first lady. She also had three more children they had together. Ian, who was born in England in 1953, and then the twins Anthony and Saketi. In 1958, which is nice. They named they named, they named their Fray sons Zichetti. after Sacky, yeah. Mm-hmm. a guy. I thought
3: that was guy. nice. Yeah, I was like, they must have patched it up pretty good if they named their kid yeah. after him.
1: Yeah. Ruth also had patched things up with her parents a while back, and they came and they visited the Kamas often down in Botswana, mm-hmm. which is great. She became known as Lady K. Yeah,
3: the rain, Lady K, the rain queen. That's well, pretty not cool. God, right? There's a YouTube star with that name right now, <laughs>
1: Lady K, the rain queen. <laughs> <laughs> And in 1979, Soretze won his third term as president, but he did pass away in 1980. It was pancreatic cancer. He was 59 years old. Ouch. He died in his wife's arms at the state house in the new capital of Botswana, Gaborone. His vice president took over as president and was reelected in his own right in 1984. Soretze's political party continues to dominate politics there today. Uh, we'll say that I have read that they're getting increasingly authoritarian, so I'm not sure of the current politics of Botswana, but mm-hmm. cursory glance suggested that maybe it's not great.
3: But it's a good thing to see, too, that the opposition party there is gaining more and more seats throughout yeah. the years, because as when Soretze was alive, it was the BDP period. Like yeah. They were always majority, as far as I can remember. Yep. Um, but now it's getting a little more even. It's getting there.
1: And two of his sons, Ian and Sekheti, both became prominent politicians. Ian was elected president of Botswana in 2008 and again in 2014.
3: After Soretze died, um, Ruth lived on a big farm. She dedicated her time to her children and grandchildren, as well as charitable work. She became the president of the country's Red Cross. And a lot of people thought that she would go back to London after he died. But they didn't know about Ruth, I guess, <laughs> because she said, I am completely happy here and I have no desire to go anywhere else. I have lived here for more than half my life and my children are here. When I came to this country, I became a Matswana, which, by the way, is the singular version of a person from Botswana. So uh, plural is Swana or Batswana. Singular is Matswana.
4: That's cool.
3: Ruth Herself died of throat cancer in 2002 at 78 years old, and she is buried in Botswana next to her husband.
1: A movie came out about them in 2016, and we haven't seen it, but it's called A United Kingdom. Siretse is played by David Oyelowo, and Ruth was played by Rosamund Pike. Pretty good. Yeah. We assume. I don't know I I would see it. Uh, no, but the movie has that's a good actress
3: a... anyway, and could have been could have been somebody lamer. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, that's a beautiful story.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, it literally changed the map of of Africa. Yeah. Because he wanted to marry a, a white lady. Yeah. Changed the world.
1: And again, uh, a great story about two people who really loved each other, who's mm-hmm. who they themselves, you know, didn't opt to do anything outrageous or world changing, but just the circumstances that their relationship existed in. Yeah. They, two people loved each other and that changed everything and that's such a cool thing to kind of see over and over again in this show for all the John Lorena Bobbitt's (laughs) for all the you know Steve Martin's swindling the dating games Mm -hmm. for all the uh, you know for all the wacky ridiculous stories about absurd people doing dumb things Mm
4: -hmm.
1: we've told so many stories about two people who just loved each other and it changed the world Mm -hmm. you know or at least a community it does something it has a resounding impact the Power of Love. Somebody ought to write a song about that.
3: Who could put it into <laughs> put it into words?
1: Only the greatest.
3: <laughs> hey, speaking of Steve Martin.
1: Oh, we man. We have a little
3: tiny update about Steve Martin and the dating game episode that yep, we did. That's right. Uh, if anyone remembers, we talked about one of the contestants was named Rodney Alcala. He was a serial killer, and uh, we talked about him presenting his lady with a Dozen red flags <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: That's right
3: um, Well he uh, Just died today womp As we're womp. The day that we're Recording this anyway Not the day that you're Hearing it Yep He died on Saturday June 24th uh, Awaiting execution For one of his murders
1: Yeah I sentence you to death By time
3: Yeah Which is, I've said to you Yeah as I've always tell I always tell Eli I'm gonna kill you one day Yeah she is
1: From old age Yeah You're gonna he, you're getting I'm there. gonna wait Every day, it's it <laughs> a little closer. Well, um, I'm super excited uh, to bring this story to you all. I hope you enjoyed it.
3: Yeah, I didn't know shit about Botswana. Absolutely. Um, I know very little about Africa as a whole, especially the different nations and how they had to get out of the colonial settlements yeah. and all that stuff. Like, I just knew that it was a lot of chaos and. In Africa, right, and that was like it that I knew. So it was really cool to really take a dive into yeah. one of these countries and, and get more context. Really,
1: we should all know more about the non-Western world than mm-hmm. we do. Yeah. Um. So I hope we brought some uh, some education to you all today and some interest. In this, I definitely am looking forward to diving into more of this kind of story in this history.
3: Yeah, somebody send me a good couple from like Djibouti or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, we have been uh, trying to dig up more yeah. stories from other continents, and uh, we're finding some cool stuff. Well, thanks so much for tuning in, everybody, mm-hmm. and uh, we're happy to have you. Uh, you can always find us on the social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at oh great, it's Eli.
3: I'm at Might boom.
1: And you can reach out to us uh, about the show directly, if you like, on our handle at Romance on Twitter and Instagram as well.
3: Yeah, and there's lots of fun memes that we share and stuff, so you should follow us. And then uh, our email is romance at iheartmedia.com. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Leave us some stars. Tell us some things. We love to see them.
1: And we will see you all next time.
3: Can't wait. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance.